Hey there, folks. You are listening to Always Be Watching. This week on the show, we're talking about Hamilton. We're talking about Elmo from Sesame Street and also the only good Star Trek movie. This is Always Be Watching, the podcast equivalent of being a teenager watching SBS after 9pm with the volume down. Hey folks, you are listening to Always Be Watching. This is our regular chat where myself and my good pal, Chris Yates, we talk about the TV we've been watching and try to encourage each other to watch more TV. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of encouraging most of the times. No, pretty much. Uh, I kind of feel that we've been fairly successful so far and, you know, let's let the good times keep rolling. Excellent, excellent. I wanted to mention um, that it's great to be here looking at you, a real human, this week. I haven't done a lot of that this week. Uh, is this as opposed to watching me as the AI that I've had pretending to be Dan Barrett, the Dan bot that I've had hosting the, the podcast the last couple of weeks? Yeah, that's right. No, I meant in the last week, but it's been a long <laughs> week, so it's good to see you again. Look, here's the thing. Oof. the Like, since, what was it, March? Is that when a stupid virus hit? Yeah, I guess so. It's been a while. It's been a long number of months. I have only had, like, I haven't had a single beer during that entire time. And you know me, I'm not a massive drinker to begin with. But I'm still like partial no. to the occasional beverage. I like to meet a pal at a beverage, like, um, you know, venue where one drinks such things. Uh, like, I like to do that every so often and haven't been able to do sure. that since March. But in the last week, I've managed to go to a pub where I had a beer off the wow. tap. Like, that was pretty amazing. I went to the movies. I saw a motion picture Whoa. on a big screen, Chris. Amazing. Like, these are two pretty big things all in one week. In fact, it was within a 24 hour period. <laughs> That's like, incredible. I'll, you didn't go to a new movie. Are, they, are there any new movies? Look, there's a couple of new movies that are playing, but it's kind of like, uh, okay, so let's say that you've got like, say, a six screen cinema uh, yeah. at any given time, and they're staggering the movie sessions as well. So there aren't as many movie sessions at any given moment. And also the number of tickets they're selling per session is fewer than what they usually have on offer. Uh, but if, let's say that there were six movies playing at the exact same time, you'd probably find that two of those are playing new movies, and there's a new Armando Iannucci film, yes. and so that's playing. Uh, and then there's a couple of films that are maybe like about three or four months old, like right as the virus hit, there were a couple of movies that were in theaters uh, then. Yes. So like that's still getting a bit of a play. So like The uh, Invisible Woman, sorry, The Invisible Man starring Elizabeth Moss, who's a very visible woman, uh, she's, you know lighting up cinema screens in a couple of those theaters and then they're just playing some older movies there's a whole bunch of retro films going so it seems as though the distributors have more or less decided hey here's the couple of films we're going to send around to all the theaters so last weekend it seems to be ghostbusters like the 1984 ghostbusters which mm-hmm. is the only one i acknowledge uh you got that one playing and then also um i went and saw 1989's batman which i was very wow. excited to see on 35 millimeter and uh, this weekend, uh, also I think like 10 Things I Hate About You was playing in some theatres. Uh, this weekend, Predator, the Arnold Schwarzenegger oh 1987 film. Uh, like that's playing in a few theatres around the place. And I might get along to that. But in Sydney as well, we've got the Hayden Orpheum, which is a very large indie theatre, which has reopened this week. In fact, as you and I talk, it's been reopened now for about three or four hours. Uh, they're doing a screening this weekend. On Saturday night, I will be seeing the movie Jaws, followed by Jurassic Park. 
Oh my god! See, I've never been more interested in going to the cinema <laughs> to see all these movies that I've seen a million times. That's exactly, it. and it's so much more you, appealing. If you want to catch some of these sort of like great big budget beloved movies, like you have to be really vigilant right now and check all the listings because these films are playing like two or three times and then won't be back on the screen again for you know some time. Jaws and Jurassic Park. That's going to be like a five hour session at least, surely. Uh, yeah, so I think the session starts at 10 past 7, so I guess we get out about 12.30. Whew. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be your butt. <laughs> you say that now. I don't know what that means. <laughs> no, me neither. Uh, oh, that'll be fun. I'd love to see Jaws. Jeez, that'd be an amazing experience. Yeah, like I've never seen that on a big screen. In fact, I think I've only ever seen Jaws... I think I've only ever seen Jaws once, and that was when it first That's came crazy. out on DVD. So it's been some time since I've seen it as well. It's definitely one of my favorite films of all time, Dan. All time. All time. Jeepers. There was a cool story floating around this week where Richard Dreyfuss has some extra theories about uh, some of the storyline. Did you uh, happen to catch that? Did not see any of this. Is he now theorizing send... that maybe the shark was fake? He's theorizing that um, one of the one of the deaths in the film was not by the shark, but was in fact by the rival fisherman and um he, he pointed, yeah. out, pointed out a few he pointed out a few very cool and um you know believable threads that could pull this theory idea together so it's worth checking out okay well i think i'll just go see the movie and then i'll come out and read the dreyfus <laughs> I wonder what dreyfus is Apparently, up to in his day-to-day these days obviously not oh, a yeah, lot because he's day. you know busy jaws theorizing yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, yeah, it's a fantastic film. Geez, that'll be fun. Yeah. It's been a pleasure chatting to you this week, Dan. It has. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll oh, no, no, that's right. Week. We've got to do it. That's right. Hey, something which is kind of gripping the world. So in the way that movies aren't really being played anymore and there's no new movies really sort of going around the place, you're finding that the streaming services are looking for opportunities to try to get some cut through. Disney Plus, because mm. they've... Ha- Okay, so the plan for Disney Plus was going to be they'd launch The Mandalorian, being the big Star Wars Mm -hmm. TV show. That was going to be the big sort of uh, coming out party. They're saying, hey, look, you know, we're out here. Watch us pay attention for the next 12 weeks. So eight weeks, 10 weeks. I can't remember how long that went for. I think maybe eight. Yeah, so Mandalorian came. We all paid attention for a while. And then more or less the plan was, hey, let's just drop a few like low profile things in there. And then we'll get a Marvel show in like, I think March, April was the plan. And we'll push that out there and try to drop a few morsels here and there for people to maintain their year long subscriptions to the Disney Plus. And that was all going to be all good and well, except then the stupid virus hit and production shut down on a bunch of these things like post-production, you know, came to an end on some of them and they just haven't been able to push out anything. So Disney looked at what they had on offer and they thought, hey, what if we push out Hamilton? So they'd already purchased the rights to the stage play Hamilton. So they'd recorded two nights of it back in 2016. And the idea was that they'd vault it until next year, so 2021 in October and the idea would be that you'd convince people like me to go to the theatre and pony up 20 bucks to buy a ticket to see it in the cinema. However, they thought, we're in such a dire straits right now because we don't have content for our streaming service. What if we bring it forward by over a year and put it out on Disney Plus? So instead of charging wow. 20 bucks per ticket to everyone, uh, people are doing their little Hamilton like viewing parties with friends and family for what is the Disney Plus subscription like six ninety nine? Yeah, Something that's, like that. uh, that's pretty considerably cheap. considerably cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, a whole bunch of people subscribe to Disney Plus, and you know, I guess that for Disney's like interests, that definitely ticked a number of boxes for them. 
but yeah, so as a result, I've seen Hamilton in a way that I probably would not have previously. Now, Chris, did you watch Hamilton like the rest of the world seems to have last weekend? No, I haven't watched Hamilton yet. Um, I, I don't even really know that much about it. The best reference points I have for it are the... Um, is the season of Kirby Enthusiasm that we just saw with um, Lin-Manuel uh, and Larry in loggerheads on various um, occasions. Oh, no, it was the season before, wasn't it, where the, the Fatwa season, where oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's producing a uh, musical for Larry called, well, they're trying to come up with a musical <laughs> called Fatwa. Um, yeah, so no, I know, I know basically, I know a little bit more about it than that, but I, f I thought that was very funny. And, uh, he was, you know, he, he was very charming in that, um, in that season. Look, he's a very charming guy. And I think by and large, when you see Hamilton, it's a stage play that just exudes a whole lot of charm. So I, I didn't really know much about Hamilton. Like I kind of like understand the real life story behind the stage play, but I didn't know that much about the actual staging of it. And so I don't want to really give like a massive sort of review of Hamilton because that seems redundant. It's the movie that, yeah. well, movie, the recording that I think the majority of people who are interested in Hamilton have definitely already seen and have strong opinions on. So me coming through saying, yeah, it was fine. Like that's not really going to, you know, do much for anyone. <laughs> However... Because look, I'm not a big sort of, I'm not a big stage like, like the theater, like it's it's not for me. It's fine. You could be watching Heat. You know, I don't mind going to the theater every so often. I might sit in there and it'd be something that actually kind of catches me in a way. And I think if I sat in the theater and watched Hamilton, I'd probably really have gotten quite a kick out of it. And the actual recording of it that I've got streaming now on Disney Plus captures that live essence really, really nicely. And sitting there watching it, I kind of understand why everyone has gone and seen it multiple times and have listened to that soundtrack God knows how many times as well. Because the entire show, like, it's got this really great energy to it. The play itself is fairly substantial. Uh, the songs are catchy and it's got a real sort of strong contemporary vibe. Like, a lot of it's rap rather than, you know, traditional theatre-style music singing, which, you know, who the wants rap to music. that? The rap music, the kids, the hippity-hop. <laughs> uh, the performers exactly. like they were really likable so like it ticks a lot of boxes but me watching it i was really particularly interested in taking a stage play because we've all seen like stage plays recorded before and it never looks good because usually just got one or two cameras from a from the back of the theater recording what's happening on stage and you don't really get much of an energy from it and i was kind of curious to know this stage play which i knew had all of this energy to it how much was that actually going to transcend the TV screen? And I have to say, like, it was really quite catchy. What they do to actually get that energy is that it's not really just sort of like a two to three camera, like here's shot one, here's shot two, here's shot three, and then just going backwards and forwards with it all. But what they actually do is like right at the beginning for like maybe the first 10, 15 minutes of it. Um, okay, sorry, backtracking a little bit. So the actual performance that you're seeing on Disney Plus is two individual shows. So they've just like meshed them together to grab the best performances mm -hmm. from each one. And because it's the same stage show, so there's not that much sort of variance in it, but obviously some nights yeah. people would be better than others and whatever. So I've got those two nights, they kind of smashed them together, but they also shot some extra footage. And this is kind of what you're seeing mostly at the beginning of the program which is like close-ups with people on stage and actually getting some on-stage um, shots. So it's not necessarily always from a distance, but really you are getting like right up in their faces and being able to move around on the stage in a way that you just couldn't if there was a live audience that were watching along with it. 
Because, you know, it's, sure. it's not exactly the best thing if you've paid $250 to go and see Hamilton and there's some camera guy who's up there just getting in the way of everyone. You don't want that. Yeah, so they've sure. shot these additional moments. And so for the first, like, 15, 20 minutes, like, the camera is literally right up there on the stage. And I was having trouble trying to get my bearings as to exactly what part of the stage I was looking at because I was in the world of Hamilton, which is the visual sort of mood they were going for, the general effects. And it's really, really effective, uh, purely because wow. you actually find yourself involved in the play. So by the time they actually start pulling it out a bit more, so you are seeing more of a traditional like multi-camera setup to just get this stage performance happening, you're already sort of bought in. You've invested so heavily in there that you don't even really notice that they're relying less and less on these close-ups. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really good. And I thought this is probably the best possible version of doing a musical like this. So there's a few ways you can do a stage play. And this is the best way of doing a musical thing because you want that energy of the audience in there. But obviously there's theatre performances which don't have like strong audience energy and really it's a dark room and like the audience is just lapping up the performances of people who are just acting to each other and not necessarily singing. And so I was thinking about some of the ones that I thought have been fairly successful at that in the last couple of years because there's a bit of a shift happening at the moment with services like Netflix where they're looking for like the new thing to try to bring subscribers on board. So they're capturing some live performance rather than just standard scripted stuff. And they're trying to find sure. ways to get this sort of built-in audience to start watching things. So Hamilton, even though that's on Disney+, Plus, like that kind of fits into what Netflix have been doing particularly. And so there was a performance of a play called American Sun, which I have to admit, I'm not that familiar with the play at all. But they captured it for Netflix and in a very similar way to what they did with Hamilton, which is right towards the end of the run, they took the actors from the show and recorded, you know, the performance right as it was ending. So this way, the actors have been doing it for a while and got that performance and the emotional resonance of it all sort of just down pat. So American Sun, it's a story, and I'm not sure exactly what it's about. I know it's set in a waiting room at a Miami police station, and it stars Kerry Washington, who you know from TV Scandal, and Stephen Pascal, who has been in a whole bunch of things. You'd know him by face rather than by name, but I think he might have been sure. on Rescue Me for a fair bit. He did a stint on The Good Wife. Like, he's just one of these faces. and uh, A New York actor, which means that you kind of see him in every New York show for a little while there. Uh, yeah. But what they did with that is they didn't film it on the actual set, like on the, like on the stage. But really what they did was recreated the set with, you know, four walls and actually created a real world space. And they just brought it all back to life. And I've seen a few clips from her. And it's really impressive. Like you're seeing stage performances, but in a really sort of muted way that makes sense for the camera. And it kind of felt a little yeah, bit like... Cool. Did you see the Denzel Washington film from a few years ago called uh, Fences? You know I didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Fences, very well regarded play. Essentially what Denzel did, because Denzel directed this, him and the sort of limited cast were all performing around like some actual like it was like shot outdoors like around these buildings and so the it was essentially trying to make a movie out of what was a fairly sort of a small scale play but the thing is watching it like the performances still felt very sort of play like and it was just a little bit yeah. sort of too broad and it didn't really quite feel as authentic as i think american sun did like it just, yeah cool fences was just a little bit sort of it was removed from the stage but it still felt very much of the stage where American Sun seems to like just merge that a little bit better. But yeah, like Hamilton, I was just really impressed with the way that they pulled it together. And this absolutely is possibly the best thing they could have done for Hamilton, both in terms of 
they've preserved the vibe and intense of the stage play, but also I think for the legacy of Hamilton, for the was like two years that this group were performing Hamilton, and now there's other like troops that are performing the yeah. Hamilton play, but like the original guys, the OG, really they've captured that as a moment in time that will live on forever in the best possible way. And, you know, that's a pretty amazing feat. Yeah, and it's something that does certainly hasn't always happened with um, Broadway productions. And, uh, you know, it'll definitely be something that's in their mind going forward, I guess. Oh, look, absolutely. Like, if they don't keep doing this for every big Broadway production going forward, I'd be very surprised. Yeah. I saw a documentary a few years ago, which is called Finding Fella, which was about the Fella Cootie um, a Broadway musical, which I believe was called Fella with an exclamation point. <laughs> yep. And um, that was really interesting, too. I think the the... the documentary i saw I, I might be wrong about this but i feel like it was leading up to a actual broadcast of the musical that was going to be played through cinemas do you remember they were doing this for a while i don't know if they still do this stuff no they absolutely um, still do so i think like i was saying that hamilton's the best possible version of this and i think they've actually learned a fair bit from recording a lot of these um, yeah opera it tends to be opera more than anything else but like there is a yeah, lot right. of you know performance that is captured and played in cinemas around the world Usually it's an audience of much older people who get along there for that one screening on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Um, the Fella Cootie one was really cool because it managed to also be, uh, there hasn't been a really good documentary about him and obviously there's not a lot of great footage. So it was really cool to be able to see um, the way that they were able to use the actors in the musical and the big scenes from the musical, but to actually, ref with documentary footage and to reflect back on, um, the life of Fella Cootie, who was like a African, he was a Afrobeat, um, the basically the the guy that invented the genre of Afrobeat, or um, uh, and re released a whole bunch of records, and uh, went out to America and was influenced by James Brown, and took that influence back and spread the influence around. It's a fantastic, fantastic story, and he was highly political and you know persecuted by his government and all these kind of things. So it was amazing to be able to watch the story kind of told through the lens of these actors and other people learning the play and learning their cast and learning the learning their roles and then those bits kind of combine back but very differently to this you know it was all all those shots of the actual performance were very much you know uh, they they wanted you to know that it was a a musical you know so because it was a, almost a documentary about the musical as well so it wasn't filmed in a way that um presented it up front and, and and some of that stuff you were saying it was all very much kind of like hey look at how how it came together and watch these sort of scenes that way but that's fantastic if you haven't seen that uh, i would definitely try and track that down but yeah it's interesting to see um this stuff getting uh, preserved in a different way because obviously we're not all going to be able to make it to see these broadway shows and especially the first runs which is what everybody's always um excited about so yeah it's good i'll check out hamilton i i did ditch my disney subscription the second about about thirty seconds after I finished watching the last episode of The Mandalorian, but um, uh, but yeah, no, I I'm keen to. There's a, a bunch. There's a little bit of other stuff on there that I wanted to catch up on now. So, time to switch it back on a bit, maybe. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, so Hamilton, it wasn't entirely because, as I said, I'm not a big sort of musical theatre guy, and while Hamilton certainly gripped me, I think maybe for the first hour ten, which I mean, quite frankly, that's an achievement in itself. But at about the hour 10 mark, I started to get my attention sort of waving a little bit. And like, this is a two hour and 20 minute performance, maybe two hours 40. Like, yeah. It's long. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. It probably didn't feel as long as the time that I watched. Uh, I have watched another musical um, on television 
that was filmed. It was on a platform, I think you're familiar with it, called YouTube. And it was a, uh, a local uh, sort of community production of the, of the uh, musical Frozen, which you may have heard of, that accidentally came on YouTube uh, five minutes with one of my children watching. And I then had to sit through 45 minutes, Dan, of a shaky <laughs> oh, handicam person <laughs> filming their local production of Frozen. Um, so probably better than that. So it's like a Dogma 95 version of Frozen. Oh, it, was, it, was really, it was harrowing. It was very, yeah. Some of those Dogma films were harrowing. Nowhere near as, nowhere near as much as this one. So, Whew. But um, yeah. Now, Chris, because we've talked about Hamilton for this long, don't you think that the time's probably right we should actually play a clip from it? Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to do it. A bunch of revolutionary manual mission abolitionists. Give me a position. Show me where the ammunition is. Oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. Hamilton, it's now streaming near you on a Disney Plus. Well, I had took a bit of a different uh, approach with my viewing this week, Dan, and I uh, sent out a request to a bunch of my friends, including yourself, and asked for some movie suggestions, things that I could watch. I haven't had a lot of time this week, so I wanted to watch a movie. I, I'm sort of not in. I'm not in the middle of a series at the moment, and I kind of need to stay out of the series game for another couple of weeks while I get some goddamn work done. So I'm just trying to take spend my one little night a week that I probably have to watch something on a film. And um, everyone sent through just the worst suggestions I could possibly think of for things that Look, I might want to watch. I sent through a whole um, bunch of suggestions to you that I guarantee every single one of those was a Chris Yates winner. Yeah, but like, I've never heard just of any of them. I haven't heard so of them before, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to look them up or anything. Anyway, what I decided on, Dan, and I hope you've got a clip ready to go, and I hope you've got the right clip ready to go for this. I watched um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Do I have the right clip to go? Please. Please. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. Come! Come! <laughs> okay, Chris, uh, we both oh. have to do it. Uh, let me just turn the micro microphone away for a moment. One second. Okay, Mate. it's good to get that out of the system. Anyway, short the short version of my Star Trek II The Wrath of Card review, fantastic. <laughs> I, absolutely, I absolutely love this film. Now, you've seen uh, it before, I, right? I have seen it before, but not for many years and not since I've kind of had a bit of a renewed interest in Star Trek the last kind of, I don't know, 10 years of my life. So it would have definitely been before that that I watched this. And um, I just, you know, I, I didn't know exactly 
I kind of remembered vaguely. I, you know, I remembered vaguely the Genesis storyline that kind of goes throughout the films, and I remembered the key moments as the one we've just listened to there. But what I didn't remember is just, you know, how well this film sits together, how how well paced it is, how well it sits into the original Star Trek universe, as well as like trying to do something different. It's it's serious and it's a little bit scary, but it's still really funny. And yeah, I just I loved it. Have you seen it recently? So I don't think I've watched it now for maybe like about 10 years. So it's definitely a little bit sort of hazy in my memory. But I'm perfectly prepared to go out there and say, and this isn't even going out on a limb. I honestly just believe this just to be fact. This is by a long shot the absolute best <laughs> Star Trek movie. Most of the movies aren't very good. No, and it's funny because I sat down and I wanted to, I had in my head that I wanted to watch Star Trek for the voyage home. I believe That's the one with the whales. With the whales, right? And I remembered some of that stuff and I hadn't seen that in even longer. Like the last time I saw that was when I was a kid. So I kind of wanted to sit down and watch that. And then I actually think I just made a mistake and clicked on the wrong um, panel icon because they all look very similar. I watched it on the stand platform Mm. and they have all these new sort of design covers and I was like, you know... It was late. It was, I had a big day. So I was kind of like, <laughs> and, um, and then it kicked off and I kind of realized 10 minutes in when Kirstie Alley, TV's Kirstie Alley, uh, Rebecca Sloan. Star of Veronica's closet. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, popped up on the screen. I'm like, hmm, I don't remember Kirstie Alley being in this, but now I'm intrigued. But uh, strangely, I didn't remember her being in, Star- in The Wrath of Khan either, so I don't know how I kind of made that. I don't know how she dropped out of my mind there because she plays a big role in the film. So and she she's plays Lieutenant Savick, who is also a character in the third film, but she doesn't return for that movie. No, and see, so just to for the rest of my, you know, to give you a little bit more of my story, I was going to watch the... Um, I made the foolish mistake I've since realized of skipping Star Trek 3 to jump straight to Star Trek 4, The Voyage oh, no. Home. That's, that's not a mistake. Isn't it? <laughs> no. Because it's kind of like, because it's called The Search for Spock. And I'm like, well, I know they found Spock. So I'm the, I don't have to watch them looking for him. They found him in the end and he was sort of fine. Um, but the first like 20 or 30 minutes of Star Trek 4 is just talking about Star Trek 3, which was just unbelievably boring. And I got the whole story. And yeah. Um, the, the the realization that you know um that kirk's son who we just found out exists uh was was killed trying to save spock as, as well as many other many many other people were killed in the mission to save spock um and uh yeah so even like so i'm still talking about star trek 4 so by the time you get through all that then you kind of get this whale. Then it's just like, oh, it's a t- it's an absolute mess. People love that film. People speak very, very fondly of Star Trek Four. Yeah, I have to say, I remember watching Star Trek Four 10, 15 years ago and thinking, you know what? It makes perfect sense why I'd love this as a kid because that was probably the first Star Trek thing I ever saw. And man, yeah, I right. loved that film when I first saw it. Yeah. But man, so much of that film is just a hot mess. It's so hard to watch. And it's like, you know, it gets praised for its environmental message, which is basically... We have to make sure we don't kill all the blue whales because, or make sure we don't kill all the humpback whales because at some point in the future, aliens may want to talk to those humpback whales and they might come down to Earth and start destroying the Earth because they can't get a message back from the whales. And if there's no whales, then the Earth is doomed, which is just the most convoluted uh, possible excuse for an environmental. There's a lot of other reasons not to kill the whales. So here's the thing with the Star Trek movie. So Star Trek uh, won the motion picture 
came out and was incredibly dull. It's like 90 minutes of talking. So when they came to do the second film, they got this guy, Harve Bennett, who was a producer who'd never seen Star Trek before. And he more or less sort of took over the franchise and thought, you know what, let's actually make this kind of half interesting to watch. So he hires this guy, Nicholas Meyer, to make the film. And Nicholas Meyer's a guy who's made three good movies. So there's the film Time After Time, which is oh, a film Oh, I know that, that movie. You know that film? Yeah. So this is a film that has H.G. Wells. Uh, he's built his time machine back in, yes. you know, 1800, whatever. Uh, Jack the Ripper has, uh, he's just murdered a few people and he's looking to escape from the fuzz. So he ends up breaking into H.G. Wells' house, finds the time machine and takes a trip to modern day America. So it's like 1978, 79-ish. Yeah, 79. Yeah. Uh, so H.G. Wells realizes what's happened. So he jumps in a time machine and chases after him. So it's H.G. Wells chasing after Jack the Ripper in modern day America. Wow, Mary Steenburgen's in that. How about And Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. Oof. That's going straight to the top of the list. See, where did, why didn't you say that to me a week ago? Because there's movie. other films that are higher up on the list that you need to watch. Jeez, Chris. <laughs> Jeez. Fair but enough, time after enough. time, like, it is a classic. So he made that, and then a few years later, he gets the chance to do Star Trek 2. And he makes, as I said, the best Star Trek movie. After that, they kind of keep him around the Star Trek uh, universe a little bit. So I think he did a draft of Star Trek 3 and also had some sort of writing credit on Star Trek 4. So the fact that those three films kind of link up in terms of the overall story yeah. arc obviously come from a script that, like part of the scripting that he had done. How much of that was retained? Like how much of his work is retained through it? Because Star Trek 2, hugely entertaining movie. Star Trek 3, a complete snore. And then Star Trek yeah. 4 has like moments that are kind of a bit inspired. And so I kind of have to assume that Nicholas Meyer is probably responsible for the stuff that works about those movies rather than what doesn't. But then he came back for Star Trek 6, which is probably the second best Star Trek movie. Get out. Absolutely. Are you serious? Are you serious? I don't even remember that one at all. Is it still the Genesis uh, project? No, no, it's, stuff, or it's still we... the original series, guys. So this is the one that kind of brings the Star Trek universe to a point where they uh, like make friends with the Klingons. And this is kind of the film where like, uh, that political maneuver. Yes. Bring is taking place. Of course. And so obviously, because Next Generation had been around for a couple of years by the time that Undiscovered Country was around. And so they tried to sort of sync it up with that future presented in Star Trek The Next Generation where the Klingons are just part of the, you know, part of the Federation. But it doesn't, it doesn't cross over. They don't cross over till the first Star Trek Next Generation movie. Yes, yeah, so that's the movie that follows. No, also Star Trek Generations is the only time there's a proper crossover with the two. And, and so that's, that's primarily a Next Generation movie where they bump into Kirk, who dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Gets killed by the uh, aforementioned Malcolm McDowell. Really? Yeah. As the same character? No. Not, he's, he's not playing Jack the Ripper. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was in Jack the Ripper. Oh, that would have been pretty cool. <laughs> Woo. Actually, I don't remember if he was Jack the Ripper or H.G. Wells. It's been a while since I've seen Time After Time. He's always, you know, if you, he, he was the go-to bad guy there for a number of years, wasn't he? Malcolm McDowell. You want someone real bad in your movie? Yeah, or your sitcom with Rhea Perlman. 
<laughs> yes, you chuck that guy in. Rhea, poor old Rhea. Was Danny was Danny DeVito in? Rhea? No, no, no. So it was a sitcom with Rhea Perlman as a woman who was returning to university after, you know, raising a family, and she had like a bit of a um, sexual sort of tension going on with the lecturer played by Malcolm McDowell. Oh, yeah, yes. Vague, vague recollections. I'm getting excited about these vague recollections I have about it. Um, she's so good. Anyway, so we got back around to talking about Cheers again. We managed to wedge two Cheers there into the um, Star Trek discussion. So that's excellent. I'm gonna, I am gonna watch Star Trek Six now. But I did. There was a lot of stuff I liked about. Um, there was, there was so much stuff I liked about Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan that I just uh, highly recommend if you're having a little, you know, craving for some of that action i think it just plays it so well and i will say that shatner in star trek 4 is fantastic and you know it eats up every scene of course but he does it in a way that is beautiful and is the only the film's only redeeming feature um by, by a very <laughs> long margin and leonard although i mean in fairness to shatner like he's actually pretty great in the second one as well so star trek 2 opens with more or less sort of shatner feeling as though like his time has come and gone and it's a guy who he kind of feels like he's career sort of passed him by he's now got like sort of emirous status within the federation and he's you know he kind of yearns for the opportunity to go back out into space yeah. and be part of like another five-year mission yeah totally which i think yeah it, and it just um it, it it really gives him something to hold on to and you know there, a lot has been a lot of humor has been made at his expense and the the overacting and the way he really hands it up but man those movies would be so terrible like all of star trek would be terrible without him hamming it up and playing it to that to that degree so i really um i take my hat off to shatner as much as oh, i can shatner's a great screen presence yeah absolutely yeah the other thing that's really quite good about the beginning of star trek 2 is they've got the kobayashi maru which is the strategy that sh uh so when we're introduced to the Kirstie Alley, Lieutenant Savick character, uh, she's running through like a military um, training exercise. Yes. And so there's a possible like no-win situation where she's got to work out what the best scenario is for her to try to be able to save this uh, ship that's out in space, the Kobayashi Maru. And Chris, you've seen it recently. I haven't seen this for a good decade or so now. But to my memory, Kirk's the only person who's ever actually been successful in you know, uh, being able to navigate his way around this like mission. And the idea is that he ends up destroying the Kobayashi Maru. Is that what happens? He reprograms. He, blow it up? he reprograms. He hacks the uh, simulator. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. In order to um, to bring peace to all of the uh, people involved in there and to prevent all accidents, because uh, that's the only way that he could do it. He couldn't. You know. Yeah, he cheats. Yeah, he cheats because he can't lose, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I absolutely love that. And it sums up a lot, I think, about our beloved captain. Now, Chris, after watching Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, are you interested in going back to watch the original series episode, Space Seed, which is where the character of Khan comes oh, from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you about that because I knew you would know. And th there's a couple of other references um, to other characters, which I assume were real and exist in the star trek universe as well so uh i have watched the original series a few times but i'd love to go back and um go over them all again so i'm sure i will there's got to be a list of like yeah. the best episodes surely have you made i don't it? think that people on the internet really have that much vested interest in star trek chris <laughs> uh just a bit of trivia that i came across when i was like finding a few facts to talk about with you on this episode 
Apparently the episode Space Seed was the first ever Star Trek episode to go on public sale in like physical media. Oh, wow. So they put it out as a VHS cassette in June 1982, which would have been part of promo for Star Trek II when that came out. Yeah, right. And it sold a, I can't say the word to keep our clean um, reading here on the podcast, but it sold a ton, Chris. Really? It sold a ton. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Oh yeah, I found a great list here. A list of Star Trek episodes. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be that'll be what I do with the. Um, that'll be what I do in instead of watching the rest of the um, Star Trek the movies, movies that which I suggested. I'm definitely not going to do. Yeah, and all the movies you suggested. I'm assuming that the episode with Joan Collins dying is probably the one that's number Let one. Me see. What do we got at number one? I want to say the episode's called City on the Edge of Forever. We've got Mirror Mirror is the one on the which I believe has the. Um, the evil Spock. Spock Goody. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the Mirrorverse. Oh, which was then, um, which they referenced quite heavily in the Star Trek, what was it called? Discovery? What was the newest one? The Netflix one? Well, not the newest yeah. one. Yeah. What's the hell, what the hell's the deal with this Star Trek cartoon, Dan? Am I going to watch that? I like cartoons, but I don't know. Uh, it's called Star Trek Lower Decks, and I believe it takes a humorous look at the Star Trek universe. Oh, see, I'm not, I don't know if that doesn't sound good. Even though I like Star Trek and I like cartoons, I was like, ooh, even a one line tagline that didn't, yeah, they're scaring me. I'm a bit nervous about that, but maybe go back and watch the 1976 <laughs> animated series of Star Trek where the characters barely move because that was the style back then. Yeah, I'm sure that will be much, much better entertainment. Uh, entertainment I will viewing. say it's a pretty entertaining cartoon. Um, that's all I want to say about Star Trek, Dan. I've said way too much already. Um, were you going to talk about something else? Look, I'm going to talk about maybe my favorite entrance into the late night TV scene, the landscape. Uh, it's a show. In fact, let's just play the clip first. Okay. And now, coming to you from number one, two, three, Sesame Street. Hey there, Elmo. Sounds like a talk show starting up. Yeah. Oh, can Elmo be excused to do his talk show, please? Oh, of course, honey. But just remember, it's almost time for your bedtime routine. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Good show, son. Thank you. And now, everybody's favorite three and a half year old red monster. Put your paws, claws, and hands together. Okay, so Chris, this is the Not Too Late Show with Elmo. <laughs> uh, they've launched the show for HBO Max, and it's exactly what it sounds like. So it's Elmo hosting a late-night talk show. But the way it's kind of structured is every episode opens with the, the like very cute opening that you just heard then. So Elmo's at home with his parents, and suddenly the music sort of starts in the background, and it's like, oh, well, it's time to go and host my late-night show. And of course, it's right before his bedtime. The implication of the show is that this is not a real thing that's happening, but really it's Elmo sort of playing make-believe <laughs> as a late-night show host. So he ends up stepping behind a curtain that's always just off to the side that, you know, he's saying goodbye to his parents at, and they give him permission to go off and do it. And so he goes behind the curtain and then suddenly is there, like, on stage hosting, like, this late-night talk show. They've got a whole bunch of celebrities that stop by, so in a lot of ways it's like the old Muppet show. 
Uh, yeah, so yeah. like there's an actual sort of audience that it's a mixture of Muppets as well as like children and adults who are sitting there all like clapping Elmo on. But then I've got celebrities that stop by. So guests have included the Jonas Brothers, Blake Lively, Casey Musgrave, Lil Nas X, uh, John Mulaney, Batman. Batman was a guest. And John Oliver's been on there as well. And that's just like a smattering of them. Like there's been a whole bunch of other guests as well. Uh, and then the show kind of plays a little bit like... Uh, I mean, it's pretty much like The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon in that some of them are just interviews where Elmo's talking to them on the couch, but then other times they'll play games with the celebrities. So, of course. Uh, one of the things that like I thought was incredibly charming was when he had Batman on as a guest. It was basically Elmo playing a game with Batman where it was that game where you keep the balloon off the ground. And so Elmo would hit the balloon and Batman would run around the set and he'd hit the balloon back. and Keepy like, uppy, I believe it's called, playing. yeah. Of course. Keep Sorry, I know Flora's lava, but... <laughs> Keepy Eppy will be next next week on Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it's just incredibly fun and charming. And look, I don't really care for Elmo at all. I, In fact, I really just despise him. The superior Muppet was Grover, which was pretty much the exact same character. And like, we all grew up with Grover. And then suddenly he's been pushed aside for this upstart Elmo. I've never cared for that at all. Uh, but this has kind of won me over to Elmo. I'm uh, look, totally yeah. on board. Having kids brought me on on board with Elmo, and also um, uh, the documentary being Elmo uh, about the original puppeteer, who of course um, the Kevin Clash, Kevin was, Clash. which is a, which is a terrible story in the long end. Um, but the first half of the story is really great. The, the documentary actually doesn't get into the um, uh, no. The documentary came out about a year or two before the accusations. Yeah, so um, it's a. Uh, it, which and it's sort of where I saw it, but it, but it's an incredible insight into how they did make this character and how um, why Elmo became as successful as he was, how great Clash yeah. was as a puppeteer, and how because the thing with Elmo was that he was a puppet that just existed, and then Kevin Clash came on board working with the team and more or less just took it over, and it was absolutely because yeah. of his puppeteering and his imbuing of this puppet with the personality that Elmo has that the character became the you know global sensation it became yeah and he was this you know he was this weird kid who'd grown up wanting to be a muppet you know he was like when he was a little kid he wanted to make puppets and he wanted to be a puppeteer and he'd gone and met um jim henson in the really like as a kid and you know had a tour of the muppet workshop and like you know kind of just had this this was his life dream was to be a a puppeteer on sesame street and um yeah and he was able to not only you know get there and join the join the crew but then have it become this absolute massive smash which you know the the tickle me elmo dolls and all that kind of stuff were just so much bigger a, a, a um cash cow than anything that that um sesame street had come up with before so it was this kind of incredible oh, yeah. thing the way it turned it around um but a more uplifting doco um based on sesame street dan is the um being uh, the big bird one which i can't which i want to say is called being big bird but i don't think that's that can't be right. I don't think that's quite right. The, uh, um, but that's the story of Carol Spinney, who unfortunately I think only passed away this year, if I remember correctly, or maybe last year. Um, the puppeteer behind um, I Am Big Bird, the Carol Spinney story. Uh, and just like Carol Spinney just seems like the, the, the most wonderful sweetheart and uh, a real genuine family man who did this incredible stuff. Um for you know for children and for kids tv everywhere and 
became, you know, Big Bird was probably the first star out of the whole thing. So he was, Carol Spinney was still doing it well into his, into his very old age. And uh, oh, no, he, he was. was. So he only passed away like very late last year. So I want to say it was like December last year. Yeah. So he only retired from being Big Bird, like maybe within about a year or so before then. Yeah, like I know they had him. They had a couple of other um, p people in doing some of the more physical stuff, but yeah, he was still definitely mm. doing. He was still the main Big Bird puppeteer right up till the end, which is just just phenomenal. But yeah, um, and just finally, I won't get into all my all my Muppet trivia because I got <laughs> quite a bit up my sleeve there. But this um, for people listening in Australia, the um, uh, iView at the moment has got the uh, Sesame Street fiftieth anniversary special um which was which is hosted by jason levitt i think or something but it's a really cool i've certainly seen bits of it i'm looking forward to watching the whole thing but it's a kind of a really awesome retrospective of the 50 years that sesame street has been on and has some of the um original uh original hosts who are you know very very old and frail now and then goes right through the eras of sesame street so it's um that's another that'll be another really cool thing to watch i might even talk about it on the show next week it actually aired in america and uh in, i think november last year um so mm. it's still relatively new but yeah uh go, I go, yeah like i say i could t i could talk about sesame street for hours but that'll do for now dan yeah um so the show up late with elmo it's airing on hbo max in the us we haven't got it here in australia yet which is kind of a bit frustrating but the thing that I was uh, like particularly taken with is that no episode goes for longer than about 15 minutes. So it's a very sort of bite-sized show to go for. It reminded me a lot of, in Australia, and like they've got variations of this sort of around the world as well. But in Australia, we had Fat Cat and Humphrey B. Bear as two um, costumed um, characters. They used to have their own sort of breakfast morning TV shows for preschoolers. Absolutely. And they used to have like short little five-minute video. Well, it's not even five minutes, like 90 seconds where at like 7 p.m. at night, like one of these characters would go to bed. And it depends where you were in the country. So in some regional areas, they had Prime Possum. And I think Western <laughs> Australia really had like Prime its Possum. own character as well. But yeah, they'd have these characters that would go to bed and that's when children are supposed to go to bed. And it's kind of like HBO Max's version of it where, you know, you could pop this on so convince your kids to go to bed because the actual stages of watching um, Not Too Late with Elmo is he comes out very like enthusiastic because he's opening his show. But then at the end of every late night show, they always have a musical number. And the musical numbers in this are structured around the idea that it's making Elmo a little bit sleepy and it's <laughs> time to so go cute. to bed. So that's kind of the show about Elmo drifting away. So it's like that perfect just before bed thing. And sometimes he gets like really excited and then just kind of crashes out. <laughs> that's so cool. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. Anyway, it is fantastic TV and like I'm smitten. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be watching all the Elmo from now on until eternity. Look, I absolutely am. I think I got to wrap it up, Dan. I got I got people to yeah. see. I got places to go. Look, I've got some Elmo to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it is past your bedtime. You, I, I noticed you starting to doze off a little bit. There. <laughs> yeah, well, we just need the musical number to start, and then. Thanks for having me on the show again, Dan. No problem. We will be back talking more TV next week. Uh, Chris Yates, as you'd be well aware, people can subscribe to the Always Be Watching newsletter, which hits people's inboxes every day. I'd say you'd be crazy not to subscribe to that newsletter. I would concur. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the email turns up six times a week, and that's five days like every weekday. And then on Friday afternoons, you get a bonus email, which tells you about all the brand new shows and returning series that have launched around the world like throughout that week. So it gives you a bit of a guide for the weekend. It's vital at this stage. 
<laughs> this stage of life, it is vital. It's a community service you're doing there. Yeah, so you can subscribe to that at alwaysbewatching.com. Uh, but anyway, Chris, this podcast, it will be back next week. We'll be talking about more TV. Uh, we need some sort of catchphrase, but we don't have it, so we're not going to do that. But Chris, what if we, much like Elmo, at the end of every episode of his little program there, he's got a theme song that plays him out. What if we do the same? Sounds great. Bye, Chris. See you, Dean.